Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, leaders from various national civil rights organizations met with President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris this week. Mark Morial president of the National Urban League, joins me with the details. I think as historic civil rights organizations prepared to help the administration, but also fulfilling our responsibility to hold them accountable. That conversation in just a moment. But first, this speaking of President-elect Biden, he's expected to be in Atlanta next Tuesday. Now, Biden, of course, will be campaigning on behalf of Democratic Senate candidates John Ossoff and the Reverend Raphael Warnock. Meanwhile, Vice President Mike Pence is in Augusta, Georgia today, of course, for Georgia's Republican Senators David Perdue and Kelly Leffler. And as campaigning continues for the runoff races in January, now comes the Georgia Republican Caucus pushing for changes related to the state's voting system. In a letter this week, the caucus called to, quote, outlaw ballot drop boxes, also put an end to absentee voting, as they put it, quote, without cause. The GOP group is urging state election officials to investigate what they call fraudulent election activities in Georgia. Of course, Georgia's election officials, and that includes Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, have repeatedly disputed claims of any widespread election fraud. Closer Look reached out to the Georgia Republican Caucus to appear on the program. We have not received a response as of airtime. In other news, yesterday, the U.S. passed another sobering milestone in the coronavirus pandemic. The nation recorded the highest daily death toll to date. According to Johns Hopkins University, 3,054 COVID-19-related deaths were reported yesterday. Since March here in Georgia, the state has recorded 9,073 deaths. Also at the time of this broadcast, 465,130. 13 COVID-19 cases in total have been confirmed here in Georgia. 36,740 have been hospitalized, and of those, 6,756 are considered ICU admissions. We bring you this information because we think it's important, and you all have let us know how much you appreciate it. This is always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. As these cases continue to climb, Georgia Supreme Court Chief Justice is calling on state courts to reconsider holding jury trials and other in-person court proceedings during this pandemic. Chief Justice Harold Melton recently signed his ninth order extending the statewide judicial emergency. Now, it allows some in-person court proceedings as long as strict public health guidelines are implemented and enforced. Now we move on to this. Atlanta's hot in terms of real estate. A new report from the Urban Land Institute and PwC forecasts how the pandemic will affect real estate trends heading into 2021. And Atlanta is in the mix. 
The report is called Emerging Trends in Real Estate 2021. What's in store for Georgia and the metro Atlanta area? Well, it's all in the conversation I recently had with Anita Kramer, Senior Vice President at the Urban Land Institute Center for Capital Markets and Real Estate. Anita Kramer, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Let's begin here because there's been so much made that even though we've been in this pandemic, it has is, is hit so many sectors hard. But the housing industry in general, home sales in the U.S., didn't seem to be bothered at all. What did you take on that? Well, that seems to be because of, of a trend that was already in place and was just kicked into acceleration uh, by the pandemic. So there was, we have a trend that we call um, the great American move. Mm-hmm. That's kind of encapsulates what what's behind the, the big jump in sales and in, uh, in home sales. So people have been moving in all sorts of ways. They've been moving to different geographies. You know, the Southeast has certainly been a, a beneficiary of that of moving um, from the higher price, colder areas to the lower price, warmer areas of the country. Um, people have been moving from cities to suburbs, and that's mm-hmm. kind of demographically that's been in play for a while as as millennials have moved into their family formation years and and kind of looking for more space. Um, There's a few other demographics related to that. So all together that, and then then the pandemic piece, which really kicked kicked it into a higher gear Mm -hmm. is people did not have to go to the office as, as much as they had, or they don't have to go at all, or they think that when they do go back, they won't be going back all, all the, all the, you know, the full five days, so people can move further out um, or move out of the city and and only have a longer commute, a shorter amount of time. Uh, people who certainly lost their jobs needed to loot to move to uh, move out of the higher price cities. So they're all kinds move back to their families, maybe their families that needed a bigger place. Just so many different things were happening, but they, the, the seeds were already there prior to the pandemic. And Anita, I want to look at your top 10 real estate markets for 2021. Now, Atlanta was not in this top 10, but we are included in your top 25. I want to start with, with looking at Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. What makes this the top real estate market for 2021. And I also want to compare that to a city like Atlanta. What is it about Raleigh? I want to point out that Atlanta is, it's this there's number 11, as you noticed. So mm-hmm. I would not go to the top 25 when talking about Atlanta, I'd say Atlanta's sitting there at number 11, but that the scores of, uh, so of course I have, I have access to what the actual ratings are. Yeah, you I, do. I did some math. And so what people do is rate the overall prospects for investment and development, and we average them and we, it's on a one to five scale and we take, you know, the ratings in descending order. So that becomes the ranking. Gotcha. Look at the actual ratings, the top 15, the top 20 are really tightly rated. Okay. So Atlanta, I think is within it's like 91% of its ratings like 1% of the high, of the highest rating so i would say that we can look at atlanta as one of the top markets okay to somebody else's higher what do they have that atlanta doesn't have i would say no this group is exemplary of what is attractive in the top markets you know we've touched on the incredible growth the job opportunities the 
relatively lower cost of living, the warmer climate, and what Lana has been doing as just kind of the urban fabric. And Anita, as we wrap up, I know that for folks like you, sometimes y'all don't like to look into your analyst crystal ball, but I got to ask you, what do you think is in store after 2021? I mean, if it's taken 12 years for the housing market to, and technically it hasn't really totally rebounded since the Great Recession, what are we looking at, you think, in the next five years for the housing market? I mean, we also have a new administration coming in into Washington. So there's that factor as well. What do you see? So first, can I just address the slow growth of the housing market over the last 10 years that that you referenced again? What was happening during that time was that multifamily became the darling of the housing development. It wasn't that housing wasn't being built, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't multifamily housing. And part of that also goes back to during the recession, people were not buying land and then it became a competitive game and it was hard to get control of land. So there's some complexities there, but okay, looking forward the next five years, I would say there's a couple of things to note. On one hand, something we noted last year is that this coming decade was expected to be a slower growth decade anyways. Mm than the last 10 years. The last 10 years, the cities exploded. It really was explosive growth and recovery than a growth period. So the expectation was to be slower growth anyways. So in the next five years, it's gonna be slower growth altogether. I think cities will experience slower growth while the suburbs will experience a bit higher growth. You will see the suburbs kind of be a little bit more of the focus of activity. And that would be having to do with the demographics as well as kind of the work from home impact, even if it's only some of the time people have a little more flexibility where they live, needing maybe a little bit more space or enjoying a little bit more space. We'll see that, but we'll also see cities not stand idly by Mm -hmm. while the suburbs get a little bit more attention. And whereas once it was all about the suburbs trying to provide kind of urbanized amenities, I think we'll see a little bit of the thinking of what can we do in the cities now that is a little bit more competitive with the suburb. That mindset will come into play a bit more. Absolutely. Anita Kramer, Senior Vice President at the Urban Land Institute Center for Capital Markets and Real Estate. And we've been talking about what's in store 2021, real estate, housing trends. Anita, thank you so much. Good conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. President-elect Joe Biden continues to assemble his administration with some familiar names. Biden plans to nominate Ohio Representative 
Marsha Fudge to lead the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And also, here's a familiar name, Tom Vilsack, to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, a role Vilsack held in the Obama administration. And Biden is expected to name his choice for U.S. Attorney General soon. Now, prior to the election, Biden pledged to assemble an ethnically diverse administration. Well, this week, civil rights leaders from various organizations met with President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris as it relates to all of these appointments, as well as some other issues. Mark Morial is the president and CEO of the National Urban League. He was a part of the meeting. He joins me now. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Hey, great to be with you, Rose. Let's get some clarity. You all did have an opportunity to meet with Biden and Harris. We had seven of us, mm-hmm. uh, seven leaders of historic civil rights organizations, spent about an hour and 45 minutes with the president-elect and the vice president-elect to discuss a range of issues. It's fair to say that uh, the meeting uh, was requested the day after uh, it became apparent that he would win the election. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that when we saw the first three cabinet appointees at state uh, and treasury and homeland security, mm-hmm. there was a concern that of the first three, there were no African-Americans and we felt it to be an urgent matter to meet with the president-elect to press mm-hmm. uh, press him on his commitment and on our uh, concern and insistence that this new cabinet, this sub-cabinet, these presidential appointees reflect diversity, but specifically maximize the number of African-Americans. And so that was one important subject of uh, yesterday's meeting. We also talked about those things we thought were necessary in the first 100 days and those things we thought uh, are crucial from a a long-term standpoint. Mm -hmm. So it was a robust, candid, frank, uh, passionate conversation about all of the above issues. Uh, The seven of us engaging with both the president-elect, the vice president-elect, as well as uh, new assistant to the president, uh, Cedric Richmond, the former mm-hmm. co- the congressman from New Orleans. So that being said, and since when you all asked for the meeting and then there have been a lot of appointments and selections, and how would you assess then right now the diversity of President-elect Biden's selections? So I would, I would lift up uh, the appointment of General Austin, mm-hmm. Lloyd Austin, who become uh, the new Secretary of Defense, along with... Uh, uh, the impending appointment of Representative Marsha Fudge for HUD. Ohio to become the new HUD secretary mm-hmm. as being important, if you will, appointments that have occurred just really in the last 36 to 48 hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, the appointment of Cecilia Rouse, Dr. Cecilia Rouse, who become the chair of the President's Council of Economic Advisors is also one I would lift up Uh, as being significant, and the appointment of of Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who Mm -hmm. represent the United States of the United Nations, is also being a significant, if you will, appointment by President-elect Biden. It is important uh, from my perspective that uh, we don't give midterm reports. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll judge the president's uh, cabinet when all of the nominees are in place, when the senior staff is in place, when the sub-cabinet is in place. But it's important to recognize that the president, re- president-elect, 
reaffirm, I think with a great deal of passion, his commitment to have a historic cabinet mm-hmm. that looked like the nation and that beat the prior high water marks for both blacks and Latinos in the cabinet of the United States. So, you know, he reaffirmed that commitment. That I think is an important takeaway from the meeting. I mean, we remain, uh, uh, I think as historic civil rights organizations prepared to help the administration, but also fulfilling our responsibility to hold them accountable. I'm curious, did Vice President-elect Kamala Harris offer any assurances as well? Of course, she, uh, she's been a long champion of uh, cabinet diversity, a long champion of the need for there to be immediate action on issues like criminal justice reform and voting. Uh, it was good to have her present in the meeting. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be important that she be present in all of the upcoming meetings uh, that uh, that we're going to hold over the next several years. There is another position within the Biden administration that we need to talk about, and that is U.S. Attorney General. Now, he is expected to name his choice soon, but it could be we're hearing Doug Jones, but we're also hearing some other names. Even if you don't have a specific pick, what is your hope in terms of... I've, so I've heard the name Doug Jones. I've heard the name Sally Yates. Yates. I've heard mm-hmm. the name Tony West. I've heard the name Deval Patrick, to name four names. I'll, I'll, I'll offer my own view. So my own view would be that to have an attorney general that both had the professional qualifications as a great civil rights uh, focused lawyer mm-hmm. and who also had the lived experiences uh, of black America would be the ideal attorney general. Uh, now that would be the ideal attorney general. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are insistent that whoever is named have a record uh, when it comes to civil rights, civil rights enforcement, civil rights, if you will, uh, 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 advocacy, because the attorney general should not be seen as simply the chief law enforcement officer of the United States. Mm -hmm. The attorney general is the head of the Department of Justice and is also the nation's chief justice officer. And that role has, prior administration, certainly in the outgoing administration, been for the most part forgotten. And so we need an attorney general with the gravitas, with the strength of voice, with the uh, fortitude to be able to repair a damaged Justice Department, a damaged Civil Rights Division, uh, and uh, a basically retrenchment on the department's responsibilities uh, to protect and pursue justice in this nation and enforce the nation's civil rights law. So that's paramount uh, in a new attorney general. And I think I also want an attorney general who recognizes the need for diversity at the assistant attorney general level mm-hmm. and in the upper ranks of the Justice Department across the board. Remember, you have DEA, you have ATF, you mm-hmm. have FBI, you have a number of important bureaus, sub-agencies, and responsibilities within the Justice Department. And so it is so critical. It is so crucial. It's so necessary. I would like to see uh, an African-American attorney general. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and while, while that's not one of these, what I call 
make or break, uh, if you will, positions that, that I have and that many of us have, we recognize that the former Attorney General Holder, for many of us, was the best Attorney General we've worked with. He was committed, he was passionate, he was willing to fight. And so he becomes a bit of the mold. He becomes a bit of the, if you will, role model mm -hmm. for what kind of attorney general many of us would like to see. I certainly want to see in, an, in the new Biden administration. And before I let you go, I want to stay with this theme for a moment, because, as you know, obviously, besides the pandemic, this was a year filled with protests and rallies centered around racial justice. George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery. Brianna Taylor, here in Atlanta, the shooting death of Rayshard Brooks. What expectations do you have from a Biden administration as it relates to these many calls for something to be done? And if you we're want to focus push, on policing reform, that's fine. We're going to push this administration uh, to, uh, to use its full powers mm -hmm. uh, to protect the civil rights and the dignity of African-American men. We're going to push this administration to do it by executive action. We're going to push the administration and the Congress to meet this moment by passing the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Uh, we're going to push this administration to uh, use its full powers uh, to support police departments that are doing responsible reforms, but also to put pressure and hold accountable those departments that are being irresponsible and have patterns and practices of unco unconstitutional policing. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the relationship we will have. Now, uh, they've uh, provided commitments, but this is an ongoing fight with the outgoing administration, President of the United States, refused to even acknowledge mm -hmm. the death of the numerous black men who died at the hands of the police. Expressed no sympathy, no caring to the families. Went to Kenosha, Wisconsin, where there had been a deep, deep wound in the community due to a killing and met with the police, but didn't meet with the families of the victim. So we certainly need a tone reset. We also need, if you will, a substantive reset uh, Attorney General, or rather President-elect Biden and Vice President Harris, I think know that. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we have every right to expect it. Uh, I think we have every right to demand it. I think we have every right to uh, 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 collaborate to make sure it takes place. So there's going to need to be a, a, a reset in conversation, a reset in approach, and a reset in policy and in pursuit of policy and in priority emphasis. I can't stress enough to all Americans who may be listening how critical this issue is mm -hmm. for us to turn the corner on racial justice in America and to make this moment we saw this year, this moment of protest, this moment of awakening, this moment of an outrage, less a moment and more a continuing movement towards a more just America and a better nation. And finally, as the leader of the National Urban League, what are your top priorities for your organization as we head into 2021? 
So we'll have a focus on criminal justice, police reform. We'll have a focus on economic recovery and closing the racial wealth gap. Uh, we'll have a focus on continuing efforts at COVID response. And we'll have a focus on schooling and education. Our kids have taken a tremendous hit. Uh, the schooling by Zoom doesn't work for many children. We believe many children have fallen deeply behind. Uh, there's gonna have to be investments in an effort to help students who've fallen behind to catch up uh, and have their education enriched. Those are gonna be uh, our priorities in 2021. They are what we are working on indeed now. It is what will energize and lift our work going forward. Mark Morial is the president and CEO of the National Urban League, a post he's held for 15 years. Thank you so much for taking the time. Good conversation. I really appreciate it. Well, good to, talk good to, to be you. with you. Thank you very much. And for those listening, uh, at Nat Urban League is where you can follow us across all social media channels, at Nat Urban League or NUL.org for our website. Uh, check us out. Join the conversation. Sign up for our newsletter. Be a part of this change. Now, are you tweeting or is somebody else tweeting? I think somebody else is mostly, I do a little tweeting, but I got a little help. I got a little help. You know, you got to have some help. Uh, you know, they, they say it gets dangerous when I start tweeting myself. Uh, and I'm going to end this conversation right there about tweeting. But thank you so much, Mr. Morial. Happy holidays to you thank and your you family. Thank you very much. God bless you. You too. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks, Rose. All right, now. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Two local entities are the recipients of a grant that includes much more than money. It's through Bank of America, and each year two nonprofits from 50 cities throughout the U.S. are chosen for the Bank of America Neighborhood Builders Award. Now, along with the $200,000 grant, there's a year of leadership training for an executive director and an emerging leader. And also, they get access to a network of peer organizations across the U.S. that will allow the nonprofits to expand their impact and increase their access to capital. So, Closer Look producer LaShawn Hudson spoke with Bank of, Bank of America's Atlanta market president, Wendy Stewart. And she talked about the Neighborhood Builders Program as being very competitive. But she also said a selection committee selects awardees based on their proposals and commitment to addressing many issues from economic mobility to creating community development solutions. Take a listen. The things that we are looking for are organizations that are really making an outsized impact to address the issues that we see as critically important. So again, this year, organizations that are doing a lot to address systemic racism and to help address the issues around economic advancement and, and the lack of economic mobility that has been um, so pervasive in Atlanta were two key criteria that we were looking for. And then also knowing that there is a health crisis, you know, seeing how 
how organizations are making an impact with the health crisis as well, because, you know, we see that all of these issues that contribute to a lack of economic mobility are interrelated. And so, you know, an organization might do a great job addressing housing, like the Atlanta um, Beltline Partnership does. And then another organization that's doing a lot around workforce development and entrepreneurship and innovation, which is what the Russell Center does. And so for us, we see those two organizations and the way that they can collaborate and work together to address even more of these issues holistically than perhaps they might do on their own. Well, as mentioned, this year, the two from Atlanta are the Russell Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship and the Atlanta Beltline Partnership. And joining me now to talk more about this, well, are the awardees. Rob Bronner is the executive director for the Atlanta Beltline Partnership, and Burunda Prince is the COO of the Russell Center for Innovation Entrepreneurship. Thank you both for taking the time, and congratulations. Thank you, Rose. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Does the grant also allow you to donate to public radio? (laughs) (laughs) I I am a loyal donor to public radio and greatly appreciate everything that you do. As a sustaining member, uh, Rose, we got you covered. (laughs) Absolutely. I am just kidding. That is not a solicitation for a donation. But uh, again, congratulations. So, um, Baronda, let's start with you. And then, Rob, you can chime in. You heard what Wendy had to say in terms of what this grant will be utilized for. And so, Baronda, if you could just take a moment to reflect on what this means for you all. It may not seem a lot, $200,000 to some people, but to any organization, especially during this time, I'm sure it means a lot. Absolutely. As a nonprofit, uh, any contribution is significant, particularly a contribution that is uh, designated to help Black entrepreneurships. Uh, the Russell Center is uh, is a, a place uh, for economic mobility engine for the African-American community. We uh, drive entrepreneurs and small business owners to really innovate, grow, create jobs, and build wealth. And that's exactly what Wendy was talking about. Uh, we're talking about economic empowerment for our Black communities. And we found that the best way uh, to do that is really to create jobs within our own communities. If we look at uh, just one example is the media network for Black business owners is roughly 12 times higher than Black non-business owners. Mm-hmm. So right there is a demonstrable proof of the impact that it can have simply by empowering and enabling success of black businesses. Rob, let's talk about the Atlanta Beltline Partnership and let's get some clarity here for folks who may not understand that this is totally different from than the Atlanta Beltline. Correct, the Atlanta Beltline Partnership, we're the nonprofit arm of the Beltline and we support the Beltline vision in three main ways. Uh, we enable the Atlanta Beltline project by raising the critical private and philanthropic funds that are needed to support that implementation that our partners over at Atlanta Beltline Inc. Um, oversee. And then we also engage the public through programming and outreach in a particular importance right now and, and really directly tied to the generous contribution from Bank of America. We empower residents in Beltline neighborhoods through partnerships that help people stay in their homes, connect them with jobs, and ultimately live healthier lives. Right. So if you think of the Beltline as, as connecting the city, attracting jobs, you know, improving quality of life, we raise funds to help build it. But we also work with partners like the Russell Center and many others to deliver programs that help residents live, work and thrive along it. Well, Rob, let me stay with you for a moment, then let's dig into some of the specific projects that each of your organizations um, are are involved in. So, Rob, you go ahead and, you go ahead and finish. Uh, can you 
talk about one or two that you feel really demonstrate what the mission of the Atlanta Beltline partnership is all about and specifically as it relates to why you all received this award. Absolutely. Uh, so it's you know critically important, you know, Rose, that those longtime residents and Beltline neighborhoods can stay in their communities to enjoy the benefits that the Beltline brings. Right. I mean, if we look at the at the history of, of the project, um, while it's been very, very successful in, in many ways, uh, we know we need to do a better job of, of helping those longtime residents stay in their communities. And so this contribution is going to primarily help us launch our legacy resident retention program by helping those most vulnerable homeowners along the southern and western parts of the Beltline pay increases that they may see in their property taxes. Uh, this is estimated to be about a $12.5 million program over 10 years, mm -hmm. uh, but this seed funding from Bank of America is really going to help us to, to launch it. Uh, we also have a variety of programs that are helping to connect residents with the partners and the resources to stay in their communities. Uh, Bank of America has also um, supported our home empowerment uh, workshops, uh, which we've been doing for a number of years now. But it helps people uh, appeal their property taxes. It helps renters connect with uh, resources uh, through COVID and others that can, can help them with, uh, with retention. It can help them even weatherize their homes and, and lower their ownership costs, as well as making sure that they're taking you know, key things like homestead exemptions and, and other cost-reducing uh, measures. And then we also have uh, workforce partnerships. So we have a, a number of good partners like Strive Atlanta and, and Juva Jobs, really helping those Beltline residents, with the Beltline being such a big job generator, um, helping them get the skills that they need and the pathways to employment. And so it's in areas like that that, again, with, with organizations like the Russell Center, that we really see continued opportunity with this help from Bank of America uh, to, to grow those programs and reach more residents along the Beltline so that they can benefit ultimately and, and live, work, and thrive along it. Well, let me ask, stay with you for a moment, Rob. The challenges that you all cannot control, and Rob, you know as there are some issues folks have with the Beltline in terms of displacement. So if you are working toward an initiative to help legacy residents stay in their home or help those residents currently in those areas stay in, in their neighborhoods that they've grown up in, but at the same time, the Beltline, because of the Beltline, may spur economic development that directly negatively impacts them. How do you grapple with that? Because you have to now, you're working toward initiatives that are, or circumstances that are brought on by the Atlanta Beltline. How do you, how do y'all work through that? Yeah, I mean, and, and Rose, that's a really, really important um, question and, and one that we uh, frankly wrestle with, with every day. Um, it's part of why we are so um, excited about the investment the Bank of America and, and others who have made some lead contributions to this uh, to this fund. I think what um, what sometimes is lost uh, with the Beltline is that that job generator. I mean, you know, Bank of America's belief in the Beltline as a way to help Atlanta recover from the impacts of COVID is is critically important and. Um, you know, when you see the, the 20,000 jobs that have been created to date, the again, the 50,000 that are expected uh, to be to be generated. And frankly, as as the Beltline happens, I mean, those developments that happen create more the, the way the through the tax allocation district actually create more funding that can be used for um, affordable housing and, and other things to help people uh, stay in place. Um, and, and again, our partners at Atlanta Beltline Inc. have 
have really done a, I think, a, a tremendous job in, in creating more affordable housing, and there's there's more to be made. But it's a it's a citywide effort. It takes public and and private and nonprofit resources and partners, right, coming together because you know those issues that that you bring up are are real and are ones that cities all over the country um, are wrestling with. And you know we think that we've got with with the Beltline a way to actually bring wealth into communities. And so the key then is to, of course, make sure that we connect those residents, help them stay in those communities, and then connect them with the opportunities that are that are being created. And, Buranda, when we talk about these communities and these neighborhoods, which Rob was just referring to, we all know what's happening over on the west side of town. We all know what's happening with economic development. Some call it gentrification. Now, depending on who you ask, that can be a good thing or a bad thing. How do you all see the Russell Center being that catalyst to spur economic development that really does benefit or will benefit the folks who are who live in those communities? One of the reasons why we are located where we are in Castleberry Hill, we want to be on the west side where, frankly, you know, we are, our black and brown communities are, our black and brown schools are. Uh, so it's important for us to be not only in, but of the community. Um, you know, we all have our own stories about, um, you know, opportunities and opportunities came from access, support, resources and exposure. And that's what we're providing for our black and brown communities uh, here in Atlanta area. It's, it's really uh, significant for us to be where we are in this moment in time. And we all understand uh, that, you know, 2020 has been a year like no other from the pandemic to uh, racial and social injustices to uh, to the, the election that, that Atlanta is still experiencing the effects of the election. Uh, and we also know that all of those things disproportionately affect black communities. Mm-hmm. So we are here to be that, not only that beacon of hope but that lifeline for for our businesses, uh, that support, and to be that place where they can authentically be themselves um, in every sense of the word, where they can provide the mentorship, the coaching, the support, um, the foundational learning, so that they too can can guide and direct and become CEOs of their own companies. I often say that part of the reason why the Russell Center mission resonates so fully is because of the Russell, uh, the Russell family legacy with Russell coming from nothing as mm-hmm. a plasterer and then growing his own business. And that's, that's something that everyone can resonate with. Um, and be it successful entrepreneurs or budding entrepreneurs. So we understand that story along the way. I'm sorry, Rob, did you want to add something? Yeah, I, I just wanted to, to build on what uh, Brenda had, had said is that, you know, with with those entrepreneurs, you know, the Beltline does help to bring in customers, right? And and what's so important is as Atlanta tries to recover from, you know, COVID and the economy and, and racial and socioeconomic injustice, that that economic recovery is done in an equitable way. Mm-hmm. Right. And and that's where the importance of, of partners working together, of everybody bringing, you know, different skills and resources to help the residents who have been hit hardest uh, by, you know, not, and it's not just by 2020. I mean, if we're, if we're real, these issues have, have been there for, for a long time, um, but to, to move forward together and, you know, again, the, the Beltline provides that economic engine on which all of, you know, that provides the wealth and the opportunity uh, that really can help 
black-owned businesses, black communities, you know, help them to, to thrive. And again, it's why we're so excited, uh, Rose being part of the Bank of America Neighborhood Builders Network. I mean, part of what they offer is, is leadership training, the, the community of, of fellow nonprofits, so that we really all can work together, right? To, to help people who are hurting, right? To help people who have been left behind um, for for too long and, and to help address some of the systemic issues that have, have resulted in Atlanta having some of the worst income inequality in the in the country. Um, but again, it, it, it starts with you've got to have an economy and then you need to help open up the access for people to benefit from that economy. And that's where I really think, you know, an initiative like the Beltline working with great organizations like the Russell Center and, and many others um, can really have a, a shot at changing the trajectory for a lot of these communities and residents who have who have been left behind for too long. And we need to change that. I think a lot of people definitely agree with that, Rob, along with the grant, along with the money, which is always nice. Uh, there's a year of leadership training for an executive director and what they call an emerging leader. Have you all identified those individuals within your organization, Rob? Yeah, we have. So I, I intend to still be the executive director. And uh, our emerging leader is is Jen Tremont, who's been leading our Empower work um, and programming and building a lot of the, the partnerships that I, I described in the workshops. And we really look forward to helping her uh, grow and, and make that part of our, our programming even stronger. All right. And Brenda, what about you all? So our emerging leader will be our VP of entrepreneurship and innovation because it is that's a pivotal role for us uh, we're still building on our team we're still growing uh, as you said earlier we are fairly new uh, but that person is going to be the one that has the um, everyday uh, responsibility for supporting these entrepreneurs um, you know as Rob said this is a heavy lift for all of us and we have to bring uh, all of the best of us in terms of our leadership, in terms of our talents, in terms of our skill. Um, it, this is a complicated, complex, and certainly um, uh, systemic uh, issue that has gone on and affects and impacts all of us. Uh, and to Rob's point, this is not an issue, and I say this all the time, this is not a black issue uh, because uh, frankly, whatever happens to help black entrepreneurs helps all of us it helps the city of atlanta it helps georgia it helps the country uh, so it helps the least of us helps all of us and uh, this is something that everyone has to do their part uh, to change that trajectory so that it is positive it is more equitable uh, and to support people in terms of their their dreams their livelihood the communities and finally i want to want you all to address this if you can. When we think of economic mobility, and there's a definition of, for that, but when we talk about economic mobility in Atlanta, and Brenda, I'll let you take it first, what does that mean to you? Yes, I think in Atlanta, first of all, Rose, I will, I will reiterate what I'm sure you've heard many, many times. Atlanta has the best of everything in America. Um, we have the most diverse population. We have the most... Uh, Fortune 500 companies that are headquartered here. We have great schools. Um, we have a, a great community. We have great, um, uh, a temperate uh, climate. We have a uh, good cost of living. We have all of the elements here. So we have the best of the best. We are the ones that, that can get this right. We can learn how to do this. So economic mobility in Atlanta means that people have 
access to opportunity, access to the ability to become who they want to be, become who they can be, and be able to build systemic and generational wealth uh, so that this is something that, that they can build on and share and impart with their, with their families. One of, the, one of the things that's a challenge for many Black entrepreneurs is that if you have not had someone in your family that has been an entrepreneur, you don't necessarily know what that looks like or what that entails. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just like saying, if you have not been an engineer and someone says, hey, you should be an engineer, you've never heard about it, you haven't been exposed to it, you don't really know what that entails. So unless you have this generational uh, support and understanding of what that means, it's very, very difficult. You're always reinventing the wheel. It's oftentimes why you see families where if your parents were, um, if your parents were a doctor, you become a doctor. If your parents were a lawyer, you become a doctor because that's what you know, that's what you see, that's what you're exposed to. Mm-hmm. So we want to make economic mobility mean that there's exposure, there's access, there's opportunity, there's support for everyone, irregardless of who you are or where you are. Right. Rob, I'll give you the last word on this. How do you define economic mobility in Atlanta? And and I'm not, I said Berinda really uh, captured a, a lot of it, but I, I agree that it's the access to opportunity. I mean, Atlanta has been, you know, a mecca for, you know, middle class, upper class, black America, and we have, you know, the worst income inequality in, in the country, right? Mm-hmm. And those two stand in tension with each other, right? So there are, there are obviously folks who aren't getting access to the opportunities that um, Atlanta provides. And so I think economic mo- t- mobility in Atlanta, you know, absolutely has to include an intentional inclusion of those who have been left out, right? And it is, you know, things that help them stay in their homes so that they can be close to the job centers that are generating the economic opportunities, right? And, and the actual wealth creation. And then, you know, frankly, making sure that they have the opportunity to get the skills for those jobs, right? And, and there's, you know, one of the things that we're, you know, really trying to be intentional about is having these pipelines for residents along the Beltline to work with the training providers who can give them the skills for the jobs that are coming to the Beltline, right? And those jobs need to be attainable. We love the McKinsey's and we love the, you know, Black Rocks and Microsoft's and those are all good jobs, but there also needs to be an intentionality, right? And, and our friends are at Atlanta Beltline Inc. are really committed to this, an intentionality of bringing jobs that are all up and down the income scale and pay a livable wage, right? And then putting in place the pathways so that residents can get that so they can move up the income ladder and not have to, you know, commute for an hour or two, right? And and be dependent on, um, you know, transportation system. Mm-hmm. And, and so all of that works together in a system that helps people get the skills they need, access those opportunities and intentionality about what those opportunities are and bringing in the partners who can help individuals in a, in a holistic way, right? And, and also being intentional about helping people be able to stay in the communities near those job centers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think if Atlanta can do that, then Atlanta will be a, um, you know, a beacon of, of equity for everybody, right? And a beacon of opportunity for everybody. All right. Rob Bronner, the executive director for the Atlanta Beltline Partnership, and Burunda Prince, the COO of the Russell Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. 
This year's awardees from the Bank of America Neighborhood Builders Award. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Been a delight, Rose. Thank you, Rose. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.